0: Wait, that's a thing? Never heard of it. Oh, you have no idea. This is Haven Space, a safe place for fantasies. Brought to you by sex coach and researcher, Sarah Perry. Hi folks, this is Sarah Perry and welcome back to Haven Space, Today we're going to be discussing two fetishes that are actually a little bit different from each other, but they do correlate and I think that they are, it'll make sense when we start talking about it, why I've decided to group these together. We're going to be talking about intoxication or forced intoxication and somnophilia. Of course, by the end of this podcast, you should know a little bit more about what these fetishes are, a little bit of the history around it, how it's been studied, what we know, what we don't know, how to find it, how to go about making it happen for yourself with all of the consent, respect, and pleasure that our bodies are worthy of. So intoxication or forced intoxication fetishes are um, being attracted to the idea of coercing someone into getting messed up. So this could be done with a ton of different stuff. It could be done with drugs. It could be done with alcohol. Um, also forms of breath play could be forced intoxication, but that's gonna, we're going to put that in a separate one altogether because breath play is a very common um, fetish and there's a ton of info on it. So definitely not putting it on this one. But this idea of the power differential between a dominant person who is then um, forcing somebody to continue to get intoxicated, of course, under the boundaries that have already been consented to and established in advance and then proceeds to have their way with them in many different ways. In traditional BDSM kind of dominatrix dynamics, it could be um, that they're being coerced into doing very embarrassing things, humiliating things, things that can be caught on film and used later for blackmail and that type of fetish. Um, Also sexual things, sometimes sexually degrading things. So definitely a power differential with the dominant submissive dynamic. Somnophilia is the fetish of sleeping with someone who is passed out. Um, it's also been called the sleeping princess syndrome or the sleeping beauty syndrome. And it's the idea that you can take advantage of someone who is incapacitated, but does not involve any type of force or violence. In fact, the people who um, disclose having or dealing with somnophilia typically do not engage with people who are awake, specifically because their fetish doesn't involve violence. It involves getting away with something that was secretive, but that was pleasurable and playful and non-traumatic. Of course, this is not to say that someone who is unconscious being raped is non-traumatic, We are talking about inside of consensual dynamics, and I'll talk a little bit later about how you can ensure that you're setting this up to be something that is healthy for both people participating, or for all the people participating, if that's the kind of party you're throwing. So like I mentioned, both of these fetishes, intoxication and somnophilia, are both considered um, predatory paraphilias because they have to do with somebody being the predator over the other person. They continue on to become fetishes that have to do with someone that's unable to resist. Getting someone to a point that they can no longer tell you no, and you can do as you please under the guides that have been established, becomes a large part of the arousal, the idea that someone cannot say no to you. So originally, somnophilia was coined in the 1980s by John Money, who said, Um, it's been linked historically to incest. So his stuff says that, but I didn't find anything else, any studies that are current or any historical narratives that actually connect those two things together. I could imagine that money thought this makes sense because a lot of times the people that have access to you when you're sleeping are people inside of your immediate family or inside of your household. But like I said, I didn't find anything relating to that. And in fact, traditionally psychologists, which I don't know if John Money was a psychologist because I didn't say, but they've been known to problematize sexual behaviors and exploit what they consider to be paraphilias because of their abnormality. I don't subscribe to that train of thought. I believe that any kind of sexual behavior, as long as it's safe and consensual, is absolutely acceptable and shameless. So the next time we hear about somnophilia is about in the year 2000 when it gets listed in the DSM-IV. Of course, the DSM-IV still listed paraphilias as disorders, And now the DSM-5 has changed that definition to say that without marked distress, no sexual fetishes are considered disorders. So if you feel fine about your sexual fetishes and your inclinations, they are no longer considered disorders. This is a huge change from the approach that the DSM in the past had always had. And linking it again to the idea that psychologists and psychology has long-standing relationship of saying that deviant, quote-unquote, sexual behavior is somehow problematic. But being listed in the DSM-IV actually means that they have outlined a treatment for this type of fetish. It means that they're recommending exactly what the process is to cure people from this type of fetish, which is, by the way, hilarious. So James Cantor, who is a sexologist, super well-known for his research um, in trans studies, super well-known for his research with pedophilia, but he was recently made to step down from Quad S, which is the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality, the precursor to ASECT, the American Association for Sex Educators and Therapists, because of some kind of controversial comments he made during the email serve safe. So this person, James Cantor, who is super well-known, says, actually, I'm glad it's listed in the DSM 5, 4, whatever, but... We have no evidence that suggests that any fetish can be erased. So, a person that has a fetish, regardless of whether or not they've undergone treatment, it doesn't mean that the treatment hasn't helped. It it sometimes can be the difference between a person who is an offending uh, child abuser, child assaulter, and then the difference between just no longer being an assaulter. So, it changes your behavior, these treatments are made to change behaviors. The part that we don't know and that James Cantor argues is that changing someone's behavior doesn't actually mean you're changing what they're attracted to. So whether the dsm four will outline a specific treatment plan for eliminating a fetish is questionable because how do we then track that the fetish has been removed except for we've just taught a person that this is something that they cannot come to their psychologists with, right? So super problematic. Then again, in 2010, Swiss psychiatrist Francesco Bianchi Demicelli did a study on one specific patient that he had where he found a link between a brain injury and the idea of somnophilia and becoming somnophilic, attracted to people who are sleeping. This specific case was about a gentleman who was 34 years old and started to have kind of these sexual attractions towards his wife sleeping. In fact, his sexual attraction was very specific to hands and when she fell asleep, he would manicure her hands and just caress her hands. The story didn't talk much about what other specifically sexual, like genital-based behaviors he was exhibiting, but let's remember that just because somebody may not be acting in ways that we see as traditionally sexual, so we relate to our genitals, that doesn't mean that what they're doing is not innately sexual. They could be exhibiting sexuality and feeling and expressing arousal and orgasm in ways that we haven't considered. So he at first started doing this to her when she was sleeping. She would wake up, didn't like it, and then eventually she got on medications that would allow her to fall asleep into a deep, deep sleep, and then he would continue to do it. At some point, deciding that it had gone too far and she didn't want him having sex with her and playing with her hands when she was sleeping. She stopped taking the sleeping pills, didn't want to participate anymore, and he ended up physically attacking her. And this is how it came to be on the Swiss psychiatrist's um, desk or couch, if you will. So basically, the research they did then showed that he had had a brain injury as a child. The brain injury in the scans showed scar tissue in the frontal lobe and in the parietal lobe. The frontal lobe is, of course, the part of our brain that deals with emotion. um, And it also deals with our ability to control impulses. It's the reason we don't want people driving before 21. Like Literally, we cannot have the same impulse control as a person with a fully developed frontal lobe. So he never fully developed his frontal lobe. Now, this specifically does not create a fetish, but it may make him more likely to behave in out-of-control ways that then become obviously traumatic to his spouse. Interestingly enough, the other... Uh, scar tissue, the other trauma to the brain that he had was in the parietal lobe, which has to do with our sense of orientation in space, our uh, kind of role as a body inside of atmosphere, but also our sense of somatic awareness. So like how you feel your body, how you interpret your body. Now, The way that we perceive other people's bodies is also inside of our parietal lobe, simply because we are the mirror through which we see, the lens through which we see other bodies. His specific injury made it to where he suffered from a condition where he couldn't see part of his hand. If he looked at his hand, his parietal lobe didn't recognize that his hand was full, complete. And they would do studies with him where he would have to draw himself, and he would always draw himself with half of a hand and they realized his fetishism, the way that he was perceiving his body, the way he was sexualizing his own body, possibly through his sexual awakening, was related to this idea of not having a hand. It makes sense that he would then become um, focused on other people's hands and having access to other people's hands. Again, all of these things seem to be coincidences. To me, seems like it's a pretty far leap to say, oh, we've decided that there's a link between brain injury and somnophilia. So take that as you will. Now, here is the moment where I'm gonna start complaining about academia and our access to the body of knowledge that is being created as we speak. Elizabeth Dehan and Ross Bartels in 2019 studied 437 people who self-identified as somnophilic. I know that I've discussed previously a little bit about how these studies work, but getting 437 people to participate in a research study on a paraphilia is amazing. This, the body of evidence that they have put together is incredible, and the caveat is, we do not have access to it. So now that I'm finished with my degree, I no longer have access to the scholarly articles that are online unless I pay these copious amounts for subscriptions to each one of these little magazines. Well, their study separated somnophilic people into three categories, very distinct categories. Active consensual, which has to do with if people have already decided hey i'm going to take this pill which is closer to intoxication fetishes it's what we were discussing at the beginning where you absolutely predetermine this is what the rules are going to look like this is what we're going to do and i'm going to take this pill or i'm going to pass out and then you're allowed to do xyz to me in that condition then Passive consensual is our second category, which is one where it maybe was not identified in all these steps, but the person doesn't care. It's not a person who um, feels invaded by this type of behavior. And these passive consensual dynamics can look a lot like maybe a traditional um, nesting relationship where people live together, convive, and then sleep in the same bed, and then sometimes at night. The just being in the same space turns sexual without there being a super explicit conversation about what is allowed to happen and what isn't. Your bodies just kind of start something and you let it go. This could be called passive consent where you are not outlining your boundaries, but you're absolutely still engaging and allowing the conversation and the sexual dynamic to flow absolutely not to be confused with assault where a person does not say no. This is a dynamic where you would say yes, but it's an understood yes anyways. And last category was active non-consensual somnophilia, which is the idea that um, if someone's passed out, you get you get to go rape them while they're passed out because they're passed out. And that's specifically what you are into. So, A few other things that they threw in the study were all of these questionnaires on um, rape proclivity, how likely you are to rape somebody, um, and BDSM tendencies and other sexual encounters. I think that this study would have been absolutely fantastic to access, and I promise I will be trying to get info on that. I'm very interested to know their results. I'd like to know and would like to ponder to you maybe that our society has decided that people who are attracted to having sex with unresponsive people are predators and are willing to do it at any cost. And I would like to argue potentially that in modern day, you have these students doing this type of research with a very sex-positive lens, and maybe the numbers show that, no, actually, they are not... um, Likely to commit violent rape or even passive rape, if you want to call it that. And they are not necessarily linked to BDSM in other aspects of their life or kink in these very much more like actively violent forms. The interesting thing to note is that there are so many people in this study that clearly this is a type of fetish that people talk about openly. So, where can you find it? Um, when you try to Google somnophilia or or forced intoxication, dominatrix websites pop up everywhere. So this is definitely a thing that is happening. Um, It seems to be that somnophilia is more related to men being the, the kind of people that are instigating, whereas forced intoxication tends to be women who are taking place of the role of kind of the instigator, the more dominant one. So it's an interesting little dynamic there. Although I haven't seen any studies that specifically relate force intoxication to somnophilia. So that's just my observation. There's no research on it. Another place you can see it, both force intoxication and somnophilia is in pop culture movies. Not unrealistic that a lot of our sexual assault that takes place is with non-consensual forced intoxication, with people getting drugged against their will. That could be related to how often we see it in pop culture and how desensitized we are to that being um, a violent form of assault. You can also find it in Quora, which is just like a, a little post community where you can have conversations. And there are some very intelligent people on Quora with some good accolades answering some of those questions and commenting in. And of course on Reddit where people constantly ask if they should feel ashamed if their spouse is having sex with them while they're sleeping and blah, blah, blah. So you can never really separate the internalized shame with um, sexual paraphilias simply because we are raised to think that something that is strange has to make us feel bad or violated. So really important to keep that in mind. So how do you do it? How do you prepare? The first and most important thing, especially if you are using intoxicating substances and medications, is to know the drugs and interactions that you are taking. If you have someone in charge of your intoxication and you're engaging in forced intoxication, make sure that that person knows the interactions. Make sure they know the drug. It can be especially true of different varieties of things like cannabis or ecstasy that has specifically different options to create different sensations and feelings. Because if you don't know them, then you could be creating a really unpleasant experience for the person. Of course, in the case of illegal drugs, all illegal drugs carry the risk that you could um, have some type of overdose or overexposure. And additionally, because they're illegal, they carry the risk that you are less likely to seek out help if something happens because you were doing something illegal. But don't, you don't have to be afraid to seek out help. The most important thing is to be safe and healthy. So if you're choosing to do illegal drugs, then know that that has to be an option for you to end up seeking out help and just being able to be honest about what you were exposed to. Medical grade pharmaceuticals may have easier to follow instructions and over the counter stuff. Um, or illegal and unregulated substances. Let's say illegal slash unregulated because we never know what is illegal where and legal somewhere else. It's important to be aware also if you're interacting with alcohol and other things. So different medications can have different interactions. Make sure you're consulting with a doctor, have an actual conversation with your doctor about what you plan to do. Hey, I really like to take pills and be asleep, heavy asleep so that my partner can fuck me and act like I'm unresponsive. So your doctor will freak out and they'll be fine and they will be a better doctor for it and you'll definitely be better taken care of for it also. The most common medications that people are using for this type of stuff, um, especially for um, somnophilia, would be benzodiazepines. Um, They're known to keep you asleep. They're really good for prescriptions for people who sleepwalk and sleep talk and sleep, do all kinds of crap because they keep you sound asleep the entire time. Other people choose zolpidems. I don't know if that's how you say that, but I'm going to go ahead and say it like that. The most common one is probably Ambien, which you have definitely heard of. And if you've heard of Ambien, you've also heard of the fact that people tend to sleepwalk and tend to act very strange and kind of get up and have whole conversations that they absolutely don't remember. I've even heard of people assaulting other people while on Ambien. not sure if um, that would be admissible in court, though. Over-the-counter sleeping aids would be like antihistamines. The problem with antihistamines is that you definitely will feel it for the next few days. So know what you're getting yourself into. Don't just take a bunch of freaking antihistamines because you want to pass out. Have a real conversation with your doctor, get real stuff, and then get proper treatment as you're planning it. So keep track of interactions and the amounts of everything you took in case there's ever an emergency. You can make a list if there's a person who is in charge of safety, so like a domination person, a dominatrix, or a good idea is also to use a Sharpie and Sharpie it on your body because a Sharpie on your body can be erased, but it won't be erased very fast. So if you end up having to go to the hospital and there isn't a lot of time and they're having to cut off your clothes, it'd be really nice for them to know exactly what you took and in what doses. So I've heard of many people who do illegal drugs who engage um, in safer practices by making sure they do little things like that, like keep track of how much they're taking and find a way to communicate it to people in case there was ever an emergency. Also, You have to prepare by having a real conversation about what you want and what you don't want. The reason this can be consensual is because you can outline things so that when you're in a state of non-sobriety, you can be consenting anyways. Now, consent is easily revoked. And if it's not able to be revoked, like for example, if you're passed out, it's technically not consent. It's still gonna be fine in court. If you decide later you didn't want to, you're probably gonna feel like, oh my God, let's never do that again, but I understand that I agreed to it and not get the person in trouble and not feel internalized shame about it. But know that this falls inside of those gray areas where consent cannot be had 100%. Also, make sure you're following traffic light systems the drunker a person gets, the more intoxicated a person gets, the more likely they are to just go along with stuff. And then additionally, also be super, super careful because the things that hurt you when you are sober, the things that cause your body to say, whoa, that should not be in there, not that fast, not at that angle, not at that uh, moisture level, all of those things can kind of disappear and discomfort become a lot more pleasant when you are intoxicated. So make sure you've outlined what you're going to do, that you know what you're doing physically and that you're not using that time to push limits of anything. I would strongly advise that nobody have any type of anal sex or any kind of sounding and sounder play with a person who is completely unconscious And additionally, with someone who is so intoxicated that they may be really willing to take things that are much bigger than typical or much faster than typical and really can cause lots of damage. Again, if you do get hurt, just go get help. It's okay. An embarrassing story is not as important to prevent as a major injury. So to recap... We talked about intoxication, forced intoxication, and somnophilia, which is sleeping princess or sleeping beauty syndrome. We talked about how they relate to domination and submission. We talked about um, the idea that this is a predatory paraphilia, but it is very much based on not involving force or violence, about how it first started being talked about in the 1980s, got totally pathologized by the 2000s, but by 2019, we had some young students doing some major research on it that we absolutely have to touch back on. We talked about how you can do it yourself, how you can find it, and how you can make sure that you are staying as safe as possible while having these kinds of really experimental experiences. Well, this one was a doozy. I thank you for tuning into my podcast, and I will check you out next time. This has been another podcast of Haven Space. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Haven Space by Sarah and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Haven Space by Sarah. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a patron and helping fund more talks like this in the future.